Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I am your host. So today's episode is going to focus on the Fairchild A10 Warthog. The Fairchild company does not exist anymore. It's long since been gobbled up. But the A-10 absolutely exists, and it is an iconic aircraft. It's over 40 years old, but the A-10 is unmatched when it comes to attack and to close air support. Uh, Both kind of go hand in hand, um, but it is just an amazing aircraft with a lot of capability. So my guest today is retired United States Air Force Colonel Scott Campbell who is a wonderful man, um, awfully kind with his time, and just a wonderful friend to this channel. Colonel Campbell does a fantastic job of explaining what the A-10 is and how the aircraft has been built to be so resilient and so iconic to last all of these years and to still be virtually unmatched. Let's be honest, There, there's aircraft out there that are trying to replace what it can do, and yeah, other aircraft can do things in a similar fashion, but uh, I argue that the A-10 is, is just one of those aircraft that was designed for a purpose, and it is amazing at what it does. So with that said, Colonel Campbell, even though he's an Air Force colonel, uh, he originally started his flight training with the U.S. Navy. So we talk a little bit about how that happened, and we talk a little bit about the difference in Air Force and Navy culture, and throughout it all, we even get some examples of leadership uh, through advice that Colonel Campbell was given early on from some of his mentors. Um, Those are little nuggets that I love about this series, Uh, so uh, I encourage you to keep an ear out for those. But beyond that, we talk about fire pilot culture and we then go into the A-10 and we talk specifically in this episode about the A-10 Alpha. So the A-10A, which is the original A-10. Um, it had none of the bells and whistles that the current A-10 does. That newer A-10 variant, which is called the A-10C or Charlie, That will be covered in our second episode, which uh, you won't want to miss, because not only does Colonel Campbell talk about the A-10, but he puts it all in a personal perspective of being there and done that. He's flown over 3,500 hours, and so there's nobody better to talk about it than he. So with all that said, I encourage you first to take a look at a picture of an A-10. Google it, whatever get a sense of what the aircraft looks like, because that will make this whole conversation a lot more enjoyable for you. Uh, You'll know exactly what we're talking about when we talk about it. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Colonel Scott Campbell to the show. Soup, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here, Jody. Hey, thanks, man. So tell me, how, how do you start out uh, in your Air Force career, you know, you go through pilot training, and how did you end up with the A-10? Um, so the 
process and it's relatively the same it's different airplanes now than or at least one of them's different than when i went through uh when i went through pilot training it's t-37s and t-38s uh and then the t1 was just coming online and so right when i got into pilot training they were bringing uh the concept of specialized upt so supt or specialized undergraduate pilot training okay the previous model was everybody went and did the same thing you did six months of t-37s and then six months of t-38s and then you graduated and you got your assigned aircraft and what they found was uh they that it was more efficient and effective to uh, track select midway through pilot training and then the idea would be that everyone would have a, a common baseline of primary which is the first six months in the t-37 Side note, I flew T-34s because I flew with the Navy. I did Navy pilot training for the first half cool. and then back to the Air Force for the second half because okay. that, that was another experiment going on. But okay. at the track select, so your performance in the first six months would drive – it was – pretty much based on merit, you would select whether you wanted to go to T1s mm -hmm. or T38s. If you went the T1 track that was primarily built for heavies, so for uh, cargo aircraft, air refueling tankers, uh, C, you know, C-130s, um, and then T38s were for fighter, the fighter, effectively a fighter bomber track. Right. Okay. And so ideally, you know, the number one guy or gal in class got their choice and you know they had x slots for both of them and and then and then you went into it so mm -hmm. i track selected in t-38s because i want to fly fighters mm -hmm. and then uh while i was in i think in t-38s is where i really made my decision that i want to fly the a-10 and that was mainly through conversations with our instructor pilots back then we were lucky we had a lot of uh, fighter pilots in my flight. So I pretty much had every fighter and bomber in the Air Force inventory was represented by our instructors. So you could pick everybody's brain about, you know, and, and every one of them, you know, would tell you their aircraft is the best aircraft and really came down to, okay, why? And what was really fortunate was I had a, uh, we, we had a couple of instructors, which I, I chuckle about it now being that I'm now a retired colonel, but they were lieutenant colonels and we called them graybeards. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, so instead of it being a bunch of young captains uh, at the time, the Air Force was bringing back uh, some of these uh, graybeards at the end of their career to finish out their careers as instructors because they wanted to. Mm -hmm. And so it was awesome because you had really high time, high experienced guys from the operational world coming back to teach pilot training. And so one of our graybeards, he had flown the F4, the F16 and the A10 in his career. Nice. And which is really rare. I mean, especially these days, but back yeah. then it wasn't as, as rare. Right. So I thought he was probably the best source you know, to go to and go. And I went to him and I said, Hey, sir, if you could go back right now and fly any of those three aircraft, what would it be? And, and he didn't hesitate. It was hands down the A10. And, hmm. and he went into uh, why? And it was, it was about the mission. It wasn't about the airframe itself. And so he, he talked about, you know, the close air support mission and just how rewarding of a mission it was. And that, yes, the airplane was awesome, but the mission was where it was at. And that airframe was built to do that mission. And so at that point I was, I was sold. And so luckily, you know, you don't know what you're going to get because, uh, 
it, it you really don't know because they wait until about six weeks left in the program is when you have what's called drop night where the drop comes down and it tells you this is how many of what type of fighters are going to be available and uh we were combined with another base. I was at Vance Air Force Base in Oklahoma, and it was us and Laughlin Air Force Base because we were the first two bases to do this new specialized UPT program. And so we selected together. So it was pretty much like the NFL draft, if you would, <laughs> um, <laughs> where the number one guy picks first, and and the names just start or the the names in the airframe start coming off the board. Wow! And so. Okay. You know, so it, it, you know, it's a, it's, it's truly a meritocracy. So the, the best pilot gets his pick of the litter. And mm-hmm. so I was fifth in my class of 15. Cool. Um, so I was, I was high enough up that I, I was, I knew I was going to get a fighter, but it came down to, you know, in our class, everybody kind of knew what everybody was going to pick. And I knew the guys ahead of me were picking the F the C model F 15 was still, was still a real hot pick. Okay. Um, and the strike eagle is brand new, but we had none in our drop. And so oh. most of the guys in my class who were going to go, they were either wanted to go strike eagle viper because they wanted to go multi-roll. Mm-hmm. And there was only one other guy in my class who wanted an A-10. I, knew, I was ahead of him, but I didn't know what the guys at Laughlin were going to take. And <laughs> the A-10 was a, a bit of a controversial pick Okay, at the time. This was early 1997. And because it, they're talking about retiring it again. Oh, and, right. <laughs> right. you know, how many times have we been through this? Exactly. And my squadron commander knew I wanted an A-10 and he was a Viper driver. And, and he tried, he brought me in and counseled me, for lack of a better term, that <laughs> it was kind of a, a bad choice. And that, you know, if you get trapped in a retiring weapon system, you know, you'll you'll get left behind. You'll transition to another weapon system, but you'll be behind everybody else. And, you know, so I had to really think about it from that respect, but I knew it was what I wanted to do and I was willing to take the chance. And so, uh, sure enough, I came up to the big board and, and both a tens were still on the board at that time. So I, I took the a 10 and in a way we went. Nice. Nice. And you know, I, I think, um, that counsel to you was, was probably decent advice, but Obviously, you know, you picked what you, you picked what you wanted, but I don't think he was steering you wrong by kind of his using his thought process. No, not at all. I mean, yeah. I think he was he was truly being a good leader. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it was all parochial because he was a F-16 driver. Mm-hmm. Um, I really think that his experience, he had he had witnessed it. He had watched like the EF-111 go away and then the F-111 went away and right. and, and what happened to those those pilots. And so, you know, there, there was, there was, I think no malice in his advice. I think he was really just trying to, 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 you know, make sure that I had thought about it. I think if more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think that's, that's what a good leader should do. You know, uh, in this podcast, often we talk, uh, we talk about leadership and, and going back to lessons learned, uh, through experience and service. And, uh, I think that's that's a great leader who kind of takes his um, takes his knowledge and tries to impart it to uh, either subordinates or just colleagues. Yeah, and and it's and, and it's really about you know being informed and you know it's it's you know I've I've paid that forward with our Air Force Academy cadets when they ask me you know what I think about what to fly and I say well you know every like every pilot you 
are going to come across is going to tell you that the weapon system they flew uh, was the best. And I'm like, <laughs> right. you, you, I mean, you wouldn't expect anything else. I expect, you know, a KC-135 pilot to tell me that the KC-135 is the best airplane to fly. This is why the mission's best. I mean, like I, w- I would, you know, why I'd be, I'd look at them a little sideways if they said, well, I flew this and it sucked. Right. And so, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, but, but I also warn them that, look, you know, that's what you're going to get. And, and I said, you know, so the, the guy, and I always relay that story of, you know, if you find a guy who's got multiple weapon systems under his belt, that's probably the best place to go. But, mm-hmm. um, totally. but you know, when we talk about the A-10, um, one of my lieutenants who worked for me, as soon as he graduated from the academy while he was waiting for pilot training, he just uh, he just called me a couple weeks ago to let me know that he got an A-10 and he was so excited. Nice, um, nice. But, uh, but, you know, he and I had the same discussion. I said, look, you know, there's, there is the danger. Mm-hmm. I said that, you know, that, that airplane comes up on the chopping block like every five years and, <laughs> you know, and it's survived every time I said, now the good news is I said, you know, we just committed, you know, nearly a, a believe it's like close to a billion dollars to rewing them. Right. Um, yeah. but I said, so once that investment's made, you know, they're, they're not going to just get rid of the airplane because of the amount of money that's gone to us. And so that's a pretty solid sign yeah. that the airplane will be around for, you know, 15 more years, you know, and, and, and if you, if the B-52 is any indicator or the KC-135, you know, it'll probably keep going, you yeah, know, right. and <laughs> exactly. So, you know, but I, you know, I said, you know, it's, it's part of it. And I, I shared with them that, look, you know, back in the, in the early two thousands, we started vectoring a lot of our talent into the F-35 as it was starting to field. And, you know, one was we wanted to get our guys into the F-35 because the Air Force's plan was the F-35 was to replace the A-10. So we wanted our guys in the F-35 to bring that close air support culture and mindset in. Mm -hmm. But it was also to get them in early enough that they could make the transition and then be have enough experience to be successful in in lead and command and so i pointed out a couple of examples and and it, it sucked it was a tough decision to make i didn't want to flush all of my best guys into the f-35 you know from a you know almost a uh selfish perspective mm-hmm. uh, for our community but it was the right thing to do for them in the air force at the time based on what we knew mm-hmm. and a lot of them right now are sitting F-35 squadron commanders across the Air Force uh, are A-10 guys. Um, and I know a number of them by name. And I can say that I think we're probably, along with the F-16 community, we have the lion's share of squadron commands right now. And so, wow. you know, I said, look, you know, so with that in mind, I said, I kind of look at it as a low risk uh, decision to go into the A-10. I said, it's, you know we don't have enough pilots. So it's not like if the A-10 were to go away, you'd be staying around without a job. I'm like, right, right. <laughs> we have a massive fighter pilot shortage. You're just going to go into another fighter. And most right. likely that fighter will be an F-35. And so, but anyway, it's, uh, but yes, back to the point, it, I think it was, it was sage advice. Um, I, I absolutely, you know, was glad that he wanted to make sure that I was making an informed decision. That's what I say as a leader as well, is when I bring my guys in, say, look, I'm not here to change your mind. Uh, I'm not here to sway you. Uh, I just want to make sure you have all the information. So, cause all I can ask is you make an informed decision. You understand the pros, cons, uh, what the benefits and the consequences are. And you know, that should be the thought process that goes into any decision, 
uh, regardless of what the topic is, you know, oh, be, absolutely. be informed, you know, and then mm -hmm. make a, then make a, a, you know, the decision that's best for you. Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I, I'm going to backtrack you for one second and just ask, uh, through your experience or from your experience, uh, what did you, what did you think of Navy pilot training? versus Air Force pilot training? And, and is there one that you were inclined to more? And I will put the caveat that I know you're in the Air Force. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, they're just different and they're different for a reason. And, and I always go back to what is the biggest reason? The boat. Right. <laughs> is, is, you <laughs> yeah, know, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, I'm used to being on a two mile stretch of concrete that doesn't move, not a couple hundred feet that's pitching and swaying and, and jockeying around. So, right. um, you know, Navy pilot training, the primary phase, like for, so, and they do something similar to us. They, they track select as well. And they send, they, they call it jets, mm -hmm. um, with the, the T 45 track. Mm -hmm. Um, but then, you know, they've got jets, helos and props is kind of the three, the three ways that they, they track select their guys. But in primary, their primary phase is a lot more instrument heavy. So flying on instruments and shooting instrument approaches and hmm. being under the bag, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the back seat where they cover you up and you can't see outside. Mm -hmm. And, um, they, uh, so they do way more of that. And the air force does a lot more formation flying in primary. Um, and so, so that they, they had to develop a little bit of a transition for us uh, as they started realizing the differences in the program to prepare us to come back into the Air Force. But I think the other big difference is um, in naval aviation, and, and maybe it's, a, you know, I don't know if I want to call it a, a generalization or a stereotype. I think I can point to enough things that proves it. Mm -hmm. um, but in the Navy, naval aviation in particular, it's pretty much if there's something that doesn't say you can't do it, you can. Okay. The Air Force, on the <laughs> other hand, operates in a much more restrictive regulatory way, which is if it doesn't say you can, then you can't. Then you can't. And okay. yeah, and and I don't know what to really. I think that's more of a service culture thing. Mm -hmm. um, when you when you look at it, it was it's born of where the Navy came from. Um, you know, the, the Navy's, you know, their core belief in, in how they lead or command, I should say, is, you know, the skipper of a boat, you know, is expected to command in a vacuum, if you would, right, devoid of higher, you know, or like, you know, higher level orders or guidance, like he's expected to make decisions. It's his boat. And so I think it's more of a service culture thing that that's what they were born from mm -hmm. uh, long before there was aviation. Um, and so I think that's kind of what their service culture is kind of informed or shaped the way the Navy's aviation culture, uh, is the way it operates compared to ours. So, I mean, it, it may be an unfair characterization in either direction, but that, that's kind of being that I've one been through Navy pilot training and two, I've been out of the boat a couple of times, mm -hmm. um, as a liaison because, you know, well, I went to Navy pilot training. And clearly I speak Navy. And so I always got the good deal <laughs> to go sit out in the carrier if we were doing a joint exercise or something, which was, it was neat. Oh, and, yeah. uh, yeah. and it was air force appreciation because I, I didn't want to do that. And I, I, I would watch these guys and, you know, I got the opportunity to jump into an S3 for a sortie and, 
coming in to do a trap. Uh, I mean, it was daytime and it was nice out. And I was just like, no, thank you. I, I don't want the most stressful point of the mission being landing. Right. I, I mean, I like my my world where it's mindless because I can be as sloppy as I want most of the time because I've got two miles of concrete and right. an airplane that stops in a thousand feet if you need it to. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I wonder if... Uh... And and I totally know what you mean about about the boat because I've had the fortune to be on a number of aircraft carriers and uh, and uh, including you know during carrier qual uh, carrier calls and uh, mm-hmm. awesome like I mean just you know to see what they do uh, you know I, I don't I don't disparage any Air Force pilot but I I know I've mentioned to you before man I think those Navy guys they're awesome you know because yeah because i got nothing but respect for yeah yeah exactly you know to do that whole thing where your runway's moving and pitching and rolling and all that other stuff uh and then even do it at night it's like damn you know and yeah i consider myself a pretty damn good fighter pilot and uh i don't know that i could do that (laughs) frankly (laughs) soup i think you could i'm i'm actually quite certain Uh, of it uh, landing landing has never been one of my strong suits (laughs) (laughs) well as long as they equal the takeoffs you're pretty good right well as any landing you can walk away from is a good one and exactly i'm happy that nobody rides in the airplane with me because <laughs> I, right. I mean when i walked around on one of my trips out there i was hanging out with the guy who is the the cag paddles guy so he's kind of the he's the lead landing signal officer qualified mm-hmm. pilot mm-hmm. on the carrier and so he, i was kind of in his hip pocket he was kind of uh, you know, in charge of babysitting me for lack of a better term. And so it was cool. He, he took me around and, and showed me everything. And I was just, I, I was also interested and, you know, I understood, I knew the concept, not just because I went to Navy pilot training, but I think every fighter pilot understands the concept of a three wire. Right. And, but to see that the LSOs, you know, for all the representative weapon systems on the jet or on the on the carrier would then go back to the ready room and debrief every pilot's landing i know i was like dude (laughs) like like i don't need that i mean like they did it i mean that was pilot training right in pilot training you got that not only from your instructor but the the guy sitting in the the runway supervisory unit would make you know make comments about every landing he observed and like you'd come in the next day and you'd see all the comments would be posted for the world to see like you know and i still to this day have enough ptsd from that (laughs) that i remember what some of the acronyms are like uh psif was pump stick and flare like meaning that he (laughs) could he could see the the um elevators you know flopping around in the when the jet with the t-38 was in the flare Meaning that I was, you know, I was jockeying the stick and I wasn't being real smooth in my pullback or Mm -hmm. ABF, abrupt flare, you know, (laughs) and like, I mean, like all these things. And I'm like, man, you guys get graded on every landing your entire career. I'm like, that sucks. Yeah. (laughs) It would. It's like, you know, you never can just relax and do a landing. It's like, you know, without. No, yeah, but without, it's it's part yeah. of the culture, though, sure. too, right? You sure. know, I mean, we're we're all so competitive and mm-hmm. it's, you know, everything's a competition, you mm-hmm. know, I mean. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just, you know, who's the top gun, you know, for the quarter or, you know, in the wing. But, you know, it's the, you know, I'm the best at that. You know, you don't want to suck at anything, even if it's, you know, if you don't consider it important or not, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. So, so this is it, and it, I love these tangents because I got to ask you, there's always that, um, people have told me, they said the pilots that are the really the best ones 
are the ones that are the quiet ones kind of in the corner watching all the other guys talk about themselves. <laughs> um, there's probably, uh, there's probably some truth in that. Um, I think the, the, you know, the whole stereotype, you know, bravado, you know, fighter pilot braggarts, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's plenty of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I would say that, uh, I, I do know some, some of the, you know, one of the, my squadron commanders, uh, uh, Colonel Arden Dahl, um, he, he was one of those guys. He was very quiet, very reserved, but he was a fighter weapons school graduate, highly competent in the airplane. And I, I also remember that, and, and I got to see it firsthand that, you know, he had a reputation for being an absolute combat magnet. Like the, the, you know, he is a young guy. He went to the desert storm and then he flew in allied force. And then sure enough, when he was my squadron commander, when, you know, the first day tens into Afghanistan, mm-hmm. uh, was his squadron. And, you know, he was the sortie pretty much right behind me. And, wow. uh, but yeah, he was, he definitely fit that bill, but you know, um, it, it's kind of, I think it, it cuts both ways. I mean, I think there's plenty of guys that, that are quieter, but there's plenty of, guys who are pretty loud who are also really good pilots so it's it's uh you know i think it's more of uh i think it's more of the attitude um you know you can't you can't be a shrinking violet with regards to your sense of competition and you know like you have to be in my opinion and i've seen enough guys and gals come through through the door across, you know, two and a half decades that, um, you have to be driven, right? So you can be quiet and driven, or you can be loud and driven, but you have to be driven because the only, the only thing that like, you can't survive in a fighter squadron, uh, by just getting by. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think there's some, I think there's some unfair reputations about how, you know, I heard it when I was, when I was a young Lieutenant, like, you know, fighter pilots eat their own and Mm -hmm. it's brutal and it's, but um, I think I think it's it's not in a negative way. I think it's like the best <laughs> the best patch I've ever seen was one of my buddies who's a, a Marine Hornet driver. Okay, uh, gave me a, one of their patches and it was the best. And it's it's got the you know the, the Hornet guys all have the same patch yes. with the yeah. you know the God's eye view of the Hornet right. right. The Canadian right. Hornet guys have the same patch. The Aussies. Yep. So it's got the Hornet on it, and then it's got their squadron. And then on, on the outside, it says, we hate each other, but we hate you more. <laughs> and I, I often use that, like when people challenge me, you know, guys who not aren't from the fighter community challenge me on the notion. I said, I use that as my illustration yeah. to the point of we're like a big bunch of brothers, mm-hmm. like in, and sisters, right? Mm-hmm. It's a family thing. And so you know, we'll beat the hell out of each other. We will cut each other down. We will call each other names. We will take a shit on each other all day long. But God forbid somebody outside of our family comes in and picks a fight. Right. And right. Yeah. and so I think it's just the it's the nature of it. But you got to be able to operate in that environment. Like it's 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 tough. Like mm-hmm. I'm. I mean, and it doesn't matter what weapon system. Every weapon system has its own, you know, personality. Um, you know, our, our, our community is kind of known as, you know, the blue, we, we kind of hold ourselves up as the blue collar workers of the fighter force. <laughs> um, 
you know, cause we're, we're just, we're a little bit different breed than other, you know, the, the pointy nose guys as we like to call them. But, um, but I think the environment in each weapon system is, is pretty similar with regards to, um, we challenge each other and it is constantly, everybody's into the one up in each other. And I think it's the, that's the culture that makes us so good at what we do is and better than anybody in the world is because that's what it is. It's not, you know, good enough. It's, it's always like, I'm trying to tighten this up, do this better. You know, I mean, we, we decide things on, you know, within, you know, fractions of a degree is, you know, how we, you know, may make the cut between first place and second place. And, you know, and it's not, I just don't want to be last. Everybody <laughs> wants to be first. Right, right. Right. And I mean, and we, you know, in that brutal, same brutal fashion, we, you know, we do publicly, you know, we do some serious public shaming uh, on one another and, you know, and, and you're expected to own it. And so like, you know, every squadron has like some sort of, you know, they call it like a do for award or, you know, it's pretty much who did the biggest boneheaded dumbass thing <laughs> that month. And so like at a roll call every month, uh, everybody can stand up and you got to own the story if you're going to tell it. And so you'll stand up and you'll call one of your bros out for something stupid they said on the radio or something you saw him do, you know, trying to land or whatever, or out on the range. And, um, and you know, the, and then the squadron votes and then like, you know, like my last command is a wing commander. One of my squadrons, the bulldogs, um, you know, their, their award was called the poodle. And if you won the award for that month, you had a little tab you wore on your flight suit, right on your pen pocket that said poodle. And it was in like neon pink and <laughs> you had to fly with the call sign poodle zero one for the entire month. And then they had this, uh, practice bomb that was bent at the end <laughs> <laughs> that sat on your desk signifying it. You know, I mean, we had another, I had another squadron that the award, the, the little statue you had was like this, it almost looked like a Buddha statue, uh -huh. but the guy was bent over and had his head inserted in his ass. <laughs> And that was your award to sit on the desk. And so everybody knew. And, and the, the thing you most wanted to do is get rid of that damn award at the end of the month. And so, you know, on top of praise and excellence, you know, we were pretty critical. Sure. You know, we, we kept it. We kept it light, you know, mm. but but I mean, but the underlying tone was you don't screw up. Right. And right. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's it's. Some guys, you know, gals are turned off by that environment, to be frank, you know, that they, mm -hmm. they get in there and it's not for them. And mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's uh, and that's so, okay. I mean, it is, yeah. you know, it's yeah. not it's not meant for it's not meant for everyone. That's Correct. for sure. Right. Right. And, you know, and I guess the underlying uh, significance of that, though, is um, you don't screw up because people's lives are at stake, whether it be yours, your colleagues or people on the ground. You know, if you're if oh, yeah. you're if you're in uh, doing close air support, the last thing you want to do is put a bomb in the wrong spot. Oh yeah, I mean when you're when you're measuring things in meters, uh, yeah, you know, with 500 pound class weapons, yeah, it's it's it all counts, and so mm -hmm. um, it is truly, uh, you know, 
every fraction matters. And, and so I think that, yeah, that's, it's absolutely, there, there is no, the nature of the business, even just in a, on a daily sortie, you know, you, you can't get it wrong. I mean, you know, and you see, even when you do everything right, you know, I mean, I remember my first kind of eye opener, you know, as I was, I was at, I was in pilot training down at, with the Navy at Whiting field outside of Pensacola, Florida. And I lived in Pensacola and one, one afternoon I was home in my apartment and this, you know, heard this huge explosion and saw this plume of smoke and, um, two blocks away, you know, all of a sudden it's on the news and, um, an F-16 had gone down and the pilot was doing everything right, trying to do everything, you know, to get the, to just, you know, will the thing onto a piece of concrete somewhere mm-hmm. and couldn't get there. The engine, the engine quit and, you know, in an F-16, you got one and that's it. Right. And he stayed with that airplane, like well below, you know, I mean, typically 2000 feet is what they tell you is your you know, controlled ejection altitude. Now the seat's a zero, zero seat, mm-hmm. but you don't want to test it. And man, he rode <laughs> that thing all the way down to about a hundred feet before he punched he got it over the interstate, but it plowed into a house and it burned the house down and killed somebody inside. Oh, wow. And I mean, and it was, that was kind of an eye opener for me, just that, you know, even in a, any given day training sortie, the consequences of flying, you know, a 45, you know, in our case, a 40, 40, 45,000 pound fighter aircraft full of fuel and weapons and mm-hmm. everything else is mm-hmm. is serious business and so totally oh yeah yeah it, without doubt um yeah it, it puts things in perspective that's for sure when you hear stories like that you know all right so you picked a10 and where did you go then uh, I had to do a quick stop in, uh, for about two months in Randolph Air Force Base to fly AT-38. So that was our oh, okay. introduction, to, introduction to fighter fundamentals. So all the guys going to fighters um, went through a course where you went down and everybody went through the same, same well, generally speaking. So if you were an air-to-air guy, you didn't have to drop any bombs. But if you were an air-to-ground guy, you did both. Mm-hmm. Um, the air-to-air guys did a little bit more air-to-air. We did uh, some low levels and some practice range rides. Mm-hmm. Um, but you did offensive basic fighter maneuvers, defensive basic fighter maneuvers, and then um, air-to-ground uh, going out to the bombing range. And so you went through that, and then that kind of gave everybody, a, you know, again, by the name of the course, an introduction of what what fighter you know, fighter pilot 101 looked like. And then from there, I went to Davis-Month and Air Force Base in Tucson, Arizona for uh, the B course or the basic course. So I, that's where I went through six months of my initial qualification training in the A-10. Sweet. So when you started in the A-10, was it the A-10 Alpha or? It was. Uh, so it was the old, old school A-10 Alpha, no GPS. It had an INS in it. Um, we were just starting to get night vision goggles at the time, but the aircraft lights weren't modified yet. Okay. So yep. the, you know, the lighting we use is Envis lighting. So MPG mm-hmm. compatible mm-hmm. lighting. Um, so all the lights in the airplane were still white light, you know, which would blind <laughs> you on right. NVGs. Right. So literally, you know, for the night sorties, 
your MVG checkout, you would go into in, the cockpit armed with electrical tape strips all over your knee boards because you would use the electrical tape <laughs> to cover up all the white lights. And then, oh, yeah, and then you would bring glow sticks, the you know, yep. good old-fashioned green Siloom sticks, and then you would Velcro them. There was Velcro, and so you'd stick them all around the cockpit. We used to call them like it was called the Christmas tree setup, like stringing lights on your Christmas tree. So you'd string these stupid things all over the cockpit. Yeah. So it was it was the old school warthog uh, back then. So That's it was. Awesome. Uh, yeah. So it was. Uh, I didn't. I, I mean, I just it's crazy to think of the technology in it now compared to then. But yeah, it was it was, a, uh, you know, and and the stuff we learned was a lot different back then because, you know, we learned how to do manual bombing. Mm-hmm. So literally a, an iron sight. Like, mm-hmm. like, no kidding. That probably the same exact site that was in the P fifty one. Wow. Um, it was just a, a a fifty mil orange circle with a dot in the middle of it. And okay. so you yeah. you learned how to to drop bombs, to strafe. You could do anything with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, so that was that was really cool looking back. That you know you, you learned how to do what nowadays we don't we don't really teach it anymore. Um, the jets are just so far advanced and they have so many, the avionics have so many redundant modes. It's almost impossible to put the a 10 into that mode. But, Hmm. um, but back then it very much could happen routinely. Like we had this, the new, the new system back then was called lasty, um, low, I want to say low altitude survivability targeting enhancement. Okay. And so it was just, it was the computed site. So, you know, we had a wing corrected gun site, mm-hmm. um, and the INS, the, the, the jet pulled data off the INS to pro- provide you a constantly computed impact point for your bombs. And that was pretty Gucci back then. And, but the INS, because it drifted and didn't have any GPS, it wasn't ring laser gyro or all that fancy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to update it, you know, every so often. And after you updated enough times, it would just dump and fail <laughs> and you would lose all your navigation data. And then the system didn't have the navigation data. So then the targeting system would then fail back to more of that iron site, not all the way back, but there was a, a mode halfway in between, but, wow. um, but it was, you know, so you had to be able to do that. And uh, it's, it, you know, it's, I, I really enjoyed especially you know looking back at the the challenge doing that because there was you know the the other other aircraft in the inventory didn't you know teach in manual bombing you know that when i went to weapons school my buddies in the f-16 division were just like awestruck (laughs) by the amount of time we spent like hand cranking uh delivery parameters like literally we had like these giant binders of, of ballistics tables and all this other stuff. And we cranked out by hand our own deliveries Jeez. and they just, they just thought we were a bunch of cavemen. But, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but I'll, I'll tell you, you know, it's a, it's a, a pretty, a, a good friend of mine. Uh, his name's Donk Strasberger, mm-hmm. Colonel retired. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2003, he was over downtown Baghdad in an A10A and the whole thing failed. And he was executing danger close in an urban environment with that iron sight. Wow. And wow. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's a testament because 
everybody else, you know, any other aircraft that would fail to that mode in that kind of fight would be going home. They'd be right. out of the fight. Yeah. I, I mean, right. I, I, I feel pretty confident in saying that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and he was, he was, you know, he, he, he was, uh, a commander when I was a captain. So, uh, he had been around in the community a long time. And so, you know, he, he had no, he didn't think twice about it, you know? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, my systems failed. I'm, I'm in standby Pipper. Uh, you know, and he's delivering the next, you know, fighter to fighter briefing for, you know, we're going to go in with guns and, you know, it was no big deal to him. He just dialed down, dialed the gun cross down to, you know, or the pipper down to 41 mils, which is where the A-10's gun is harmonized at. Mm-hmm. And, and he knew exactly where to aim based on the slant range. And he was, and he was estimating that slant range with his eyes, which, Jeez. you know, again, another skill that we used to teach guys that, you know, I know a 10 foot by 20 foot tank you know, at, at 4,000 foot slant range, you know, is going to be roughly two and a half by five mils. And so we, we measure everything in milliradians and everything in your HUD has a reference where you can figure out, uh, you know, this, this, this symbol is 10 mils by 10 mils. This symbol is 20 mils. And so I've got that reference. And then I know with my eyeballs, if that tank is two and a half mils wide by five mils high, I'm at 4,000 foot slant range and I should be aiming at 40, roughly, you know, 41 mils on my gun cross, you know, that kind of thing. Jeez. Talk about, talk about trying to do mental math really quick, you know? Oh yeah. Yep. That is amazing. Hey everybody. I'd like to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Cubic is a wonderful partner to this podcast, and they recognize what we're trying to do in sharing knowledge, sharing leadership skills, and sharing the technology and the capabilities that exist among allied warfighters. Cubic is renowned for inventing air combat maneuvering instrumentation, and the company continues to lead the industry as the world's foremost provider of fourth and fifth generation air combat training systems. So the things that you hear today that Colonel Campbell is sharing, he was aided by Cubic and their technology. So for example, the A-10 that Colonel Campbell flies would often carry the air combat maneuvering instrumentation pod or the ACMI pod, which would allow the colonel to review his flights and see exactly what happened and get amazing training relevance from it. Cubic is also creating a portfolio of innovative solutions using the latest developments in learning, science, and in technology. And that includes things like augmented and virtual reality with applications to domains across the board. And that helps provide the most dynamic, realistic, and advanced training solutions for the nation's warfighters. So I encourage you to visit them at cubic.com, and I want to thank them again for their unwavering support to go bold. Now, let's get back to our show. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to back you up for a second and, and ask you for, for the, I don't know who doesn't know about the A-10, uh, but I guess, you know, there's always got to be someone out there. So <laughs> if I were to ask you, uh, Soup, to describe the A-10 for me, and then after you do that, 
I totally want to know about your first flight and what that was like. And, and you know, even the preparation for it and the anticipation and, and what you were feeling and, and all of that stuff. I'd, I'd love to hear that story. It's just a, it, it's a big dump truck, you know what I mean? With a, <laughs> with a gun strapped on it. That's kind of how I always liken the thing. It's just, it's just, it's so just big and durable and just, you know, it's, and it's ugly, right? I mean, in, in the, in the terms that people like to look at aircraft, right? Like with, when they talk about a beautiful aircraft, they're usually talking about a design that's elegant or right. the silhouette. I mean, our airplane's big and ugly yeah. and, <laughs> and ugly only a mother could love. And I mean, I love it. And, right. Right. um, but it's, it's kind of a, uh, I mean, you don't realize until you walk up on the thing that it, it's, it's an imposing jet. I mean, it's big, right? It's a, got a 57 foot wingspan. It's 53 feet long. You sit up pretty high. The gear's pretty big on it. It's beefy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's kind of a, it's an imposing, it's an imposing aircraft when you walk up to it and there are no two seaters. There were two made ever. Mm -hmm. One of them crashed out at Edwards and the others on a stick you know, proverbial jet on a stick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to say it's, a, I can't remember if it's at, I think it's at Edwards. The other one's at Edwards too. It might be at Dayton by now, but right. they only made two. They crashed one, decided that it was an issue with CG and the gun and all this other stuff. And so mm. they were like, okay, not doing this. Right. You know, right. and so back in the, in the days of the, you know, the seventies, when, when the F-15 came out and the F-16 came out, you know, everything had a two seater mm -hmm. except right. the A-10. Right. Um, and so your first sortie was by yourself. Right. And exactly. Which, yeah. which, you know, when I compared notes with my buddies up the road at, in Luke Air Force Base going through F-16 training, mm -hmm. you know, they had three or four sorties in the family model, as we call it, the two-seater mm -hmm. D model, <laughs> um, with an instructor in the pit before they got, you know, kind of signed off to go fly by themselves. And so for us, we just had a crappy simulator back then. It wasn't very good. Yeah. Um, you know, there was, there was really no display. It was just like kind of the dials moved and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so the first time you got out there, you know, your instructor was on your, on your wing, but nobody was in the jet and it's, you know, it's, it's exhilarating to get out there and like, man, you're just hoping not to screw it up. And, and cause nobody's there, right. right. Nobody's right. in the jet. Yeah. Uh, your, your first start, um, the instructor, and we still do this to the day, the instructor comes out on a Y cord. Okay. And so you're plugged in with the crew chief, but then the instructor's also plugged in and he's standing, he'll come up on the ladder just to kind of, as you get the jet started. And then he stands down there with the crew chief as you're kind of going through the initial checks because you're so damn slow mm -hmm. with your checklist. The first time you get in the airplane that literally he can sit there and get you 90% through your starting checklists, still get over and have his jet started and ready before you are. Right. And <laughs> so, so we do that on the first one just to kind of give the guy or gal some confidence. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, the way we do it on the first, your first roughly six rides um, is where you're doing TR, um, uh, transition phase, which is just learning how to fly the airplane. Like you're not like, you don't even know at that point what half the switches do in the cockpit, right? Because <laughs> all those switches are, have to deal with weapons sure. and you're not doing that, right? You're just like learning how to do stick and rudder, right. uh, not stall the airplane, 
you know, get used to the handling characteristics, shoot approaches. So at the end of that phase, you're going to get your instrument qualification check ride. Mm -hmm. And then after that, the next like 35 rides are all tactically employing the airplane. So it's not much, you know, and, and so the pretty quick, I mean, and the idea is that, Hey, you know, you've been to pilot training this, you know, I mean, you got to get used to it. It flies differently than a T-38, but you know, it shouldn't take you that long. You have wings, you're a pilot. Right. And so, but I think that, you know, and so when you're doing that, the IP, the instructor pilot is just chasing you. So the idea is you're by yourself. You don't have to worry about anybody else. And his job is to stay out of your way. And then he's providing instruction over the radio, which mm-hmm. is kind of a pain in the ass <laughs> because you can't see what the guy in the jet is doing. Right. Right. You, you know, so you monitor everything by being pretty close tucked in underneath behind him. Mm-hmm. And that way I can monitor. I know his airspeed. I know all that stuff. I know his altitude. And then. So that's how I'm monitoring him because I can't see any of the inputs he's making. And so, and we teach our instructors how to have the best methods to do this. And obviously we have some really, you know, experienced instructors who go out on those first couple of rides. Mm-hmm. Um, but frankly, you don't, you're not thinking about much because you're just so far behind, right? Like you feel like you're behind the jet and you're hanging on mm-hmm. and and you're, and you're stressed out. You, you don't even have time to be excited about it. It's kind of cool, but every second, like you all of a sudden start appreciating the moment you are like, Oh crap. Oh crap. I, I'm, I'm not doing something or I'm taxiing off the center line or, you know, something yeah. you know, dumb like that. Or your yeah. instructors in your ear reminding you to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, but the airplane, the A10 is very stable and it's very forgiving. And it, part of it is, it's got a big, you know, rectangular Hershey bar wing. Mm-hmm. So by aerodynamic standards, exceptionally stable. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the, the jet is built with positive stability, unlike the F-16, which has negative stability, mm-hmm. um, which is why it's so maneuverable. Okay. Um, so they the tend, you know, you can kind of take your hands off it. It'll fly itself. Um, okay. It's so stable. Mm-hmm. And then it's got big, beefy landing gear. Mm-hmm huge speed brakes, huge flaps. And so it's, it's very forgiving in the landing phase as well as the takeoff phase. So realistically, you know, you just get out there and, you know, you're kind of like, a, you know, just monkey see monkey do. Okay. I'm driving down the runway and then, you know, at 130 knots, I'm going to rotate whatever my takeoff speed is for that day with the temperature and the weight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and at Davis Mountain, we have a 12,000 foot runway. So <laughs> it's awesome. huge. Yeah. yeah. And so, so you kind of take off and you're just kind of like so busy in the moment, you know, like, like I, I don't, I still don't even like really remember that first flight with regards to like what it felt like or what did I do on that first flight, right. except about 10 miles out okay. from landing. Okay. And now all of a sudden I, it was the, oh shit, I got to land this thing and there ain't anybody here to help me. <laughs> And so that I think is the, the first moment I think man, most A-10 pilots have, I think have a common experience with that first ride, which is like, it's not a big deal until you get to that point where, you know, which is, well, nobody's been able to help you with the rest of it. But you know, I think landing is always that thing where you're like, oh man, you know, like, cause arguably right. Landing is take on landing are the critical phases of flight when you're, you know, when you're not shooting guns and dropping bombs and flying mm-hmm. in combat. But, mm-hmm. um, 
But so it's like, oh man, you know, you wake up and you know, at this point you've shot a couple approaches, you've probably done a low approach, but now it's game time and you got to land. And I remember that was probably the, the moment that's etched in my mind from <laughs> the, you know, the, the first sortie. I think most A-10 guys, like if they have a memorable sortie when they were learning to fly the airplane, it's the first sortie you shoot the gun, which I think is, that is one of the sorties that everybody remembers. I'm I'm sure. I'm sure. I have to interject here by saying, you know, is your is your thoughts about the the landing just because as you self admitted that you're a sloppy landing guy? <laughs> yeah, I think maybe that was part of it for me too. Like, yeah, I mean, it started when I was in T forty ones at the Air Force Academy. I was I had trouble, you know, it was a little Cessna one seventy two, and yeah. I had trouble landing that thing. Uh, <laughs> That's often the T thirty eight. The T thirty eight. I eventually figured it out, but it was never one of my strong points. And to this day, like you know, almost this day, when I stopped flying, mm-hmm. um, when I was flying T fifty threes here at the Air Force Academy as an instructor in our powered flight program, mm-hmm. you know, it's a little Cirrus SR twenty, and I'll be damned if I was struggling to land that thing. <laughs> like, I mean, I. I, I I, you know, I go out on a, a instructor proficiency sortie and all the other IPs, you know, and I'm an older guy, you know, as an, uh, you know, in the squadron, they got a lot of young captains and whatnot, you know, and they're all going out on their proficiency sorties. Like, oh, I'm going to go to the area. I'm going to practice stalls and steep turns and, you know, work on my instruction. And I'm like, I'm just going down to Colorado Springs airport. I'm going to do like 15 landings and they're like really i'm like well yeah i'm like that other stuff i'm like dude i have 3500 hours i don't need to go do a stall or a turn right I'm yeah like, right exactly but every airplane behaves differently and like you know i spent you know my entire career flying this behemoth aircraft that you know as far as fighters go that's big and heavy and stable like you could land the A-10's rudders are ginormous, yeah. so oh, yeah. it'll land in 35 knots of crosswind, no problem. Like wow. you, those rudders can handle it, and yeah. the airplane can handle it. Like the airplane can land in a crab. The rule of thumb is, as long as you can see the runway in your front quarter panel, the gear can take it. Like you can land like that, and that thing will snap itself around and do no damage to the gear. And you know, getting into a flimsy little you know, GA aircraft that weighs 2000 pounds. I'm like, man, I got to get good at landing again. Cause I could just, you know, they tend to you know, you smash that thing under the runway and not think about it. But you know, I had to get back good at it. But yeah. It's, that's probably part of it. I think I have trauma from landing. <laughs> after done, after having done it for your whole career. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, you think, I mean, in the A-10, it never bothered me, but I'll tell you what, every other, you know, after I figured that one out, I'm like, oh, man, this is easy. I mean, like, it, it, it truly was an easy airplane. I mean, you come in, you know, relatively slow. You know, you're at 120, 130 knots, but you got those speed brakes out. You got those flaps down. I mean, it, it's actually it's such an easy airplane to fly from a just a stick and rudder perspective. Oh, that's sweet. That's sweet. So while we're talking about landing gear, tell me about it. What was what was the reason why they didn't have it actually retract fully and enclose into the, uh, I guess, cowlings? Uh, it's it's another survivability thing. Um, uh, so first, you know, our gear retracts forward, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, and so what happens is if you blew if you lose both hydraulic systems so that if the the left side hydraulics are the primary 
hydraulics for the landing gear. So if you lose uh, the left side, you can um, you can use the right side to alternately extend it. And then if you lose both, uh, there's an accumulator system that'll, it, you know, I won't say it doesn't blow the gear down, mm-hmm. but what it does is the accumulator has enough pressure in it to release the uplocks. And then as soon as the uplocks are released, the gear starts hanging and the airstream just pushes them down and locks them back. Oh, okay. um, yeah, so it's again, one of the many redundant, pure spray the guy who designed the airplane is incredible but um the other thing if you've seen pictures uh is when the gear is up you can land it gear up and the brakes are still available so (laughs) yeah so we've had uh um we've had a couple of incidents where the gun has blown up uh you know it's kind of a simple way of explaining it it, Mm -hmm slow burn hang fire mm-hmm. round goes and and it goes off inside the breech mm-hmm. and it does massive damage and so typically um the nose gear is a uh um is kind of the first thing that gets that that, that takes the brunt of it if you would so the gun sure. when the gun shreds itself it's not often but when they go they go big right. it'll crack the whole thing yeah um and if your nose gears up, that's not a landable configuration mm-hmm. because if the, if you come in with the mains down and no nose gear, there's a high probability that nose, that gun is going to dig in to right. the concrete. Right. And because right. it's so big and long, yeah. it's going to flip the jet over. Right. And so right. the, the, the tech order will tell you that if you can't get the nose gear down, then you, you land with all the gear up and, Honestly, I've seen it done a couple of times, and it does very minimal damage. Um, and the and the and the pilot can actually apply the brakes uh, with the wheels hanging out underneath. So there, it's a couple of the just engineering marvels that that airplane has to offer. And and that is so cool because we haven't got to it yet. But um, in speaking about the engines, you know, you're a twin tail, twin engine aircraft, but the engines are up high and kind of somewhat shrouded from some of the other yep. control surfaces. So really just phenomenal, but it, you're not going to, I, I can't imagine you'd really fod them then. No. So that is, that is precisely one of the reasons they're up there. I mean, they're, they're, they're separated from the fuselage. Um, they sit up high so they don't fod out. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can offer, uh, operate off of austere surfaces, which we do. So to this day, we take off and land on uh, dirt, so really? we we tra- cool. yeah we train on a number of dry lake beds nice. um, out, out at Nellis Air Force Base and a couple other locations. Okay. Um, so yeah, the jet can operate off dirt. It, it can operate off of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, we we're back to doing some of our Cold War tactics. So in the Cold War, um, there were a lot of strep, uh, stretches of the Autobahn mm-hmm. that were designated should the, you know, the big one ever happen with the Soviet Union yeah. that we would operate off of stretches of highway mm-hmm. and forward deploy the jets. Mm-hmm. Well, you can go online and see pictures of A-10s taking off and landing on highways in Estonia because we're back to, to doing that. And so wow. in those environments where you don't have that pristine surface where guys are out doing FOD walks and you're running you know, the, the vacuum truck over it all day long, mm-hmm. uh, it, it works out really well for that. The, uh, the other thing is when you look at the, the aircraft, if you look at it from the side to the rear quarter, 
you'll notice that those big vertical stabilizers actually uh, are are sitting right where the exhaust cans are. And right. so yeah. they actually work to shield um, the airplane's IR signature from the aft. And so, awesome. um, yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's, it, 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 I mean, yes, I'm, I'm a homer. I'm definitely biased, <laughs> but it's just like the number of things they thought of with the airplane. is just, it's, it is truly eye-watering. You know, Soup, I think that's part of the, uh, so our discussion here is, is, you know, more in the weeds than perhaps some, well, definitely, I would imagine, than politicians get into. But when you talk about the resilience of this aircraft and you think about what it can do, how it can do it, what it can carry, um, its survivability, everyone talks about that. Um, but man, it really is true. It's, you know, it's not just kind of lip service. There's so much in this aircraft that, that just makes it survivable. And I don't even mean in combat, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, I mean, I've relied on it uh, a few times where I've shelled a motor Mm -hmm. and you know, the other system picks everything up. I mean, the amount of redundancy in the airplane is unbelievable. You know, you have two engine driven generators, but then you have an APU generator. I mean, the jet has an APU in it, you know, most fighters, you know, use a JFS and not an APU. Sure. But you know, I mean, it's, we used to joke about it, that the APU is a T-37 engine, practically. It's a tweed engine right. uh, that sits up underneath the fuselage. And, um, and you know, so I can start my motors, you know, because it has – and APU runs everything on the jet if I needed to with the generator. Um, you know, it, it has enough power to start the engines. I mean, so, yeah, it's – it's it is uh, – and, and, you know, and then everything is not just redundant. It's triple redundant. You know, I mean, the mm. – the fact that both hydraulic systems, if I lose both, well, then I have all these other backups, you know, for example, manual reversion. So the, you know, if the, the one hydraulic system goes off out, the other hydraulic system picks up both sets of flight controls. If both hydraulic systems go out, you could still fly the airplane on effectively cables and pulleys. And so yeah. you throw it into manual reversion yeah. and and now it's flying a dump truck. It's like driving a dump truck with no power steering. That's what I liken it to. Sure. Because yeah. now there's no boost with the hydraulic system. You are feeling all the air load mm. on those controls and you are manually moving it. And so it's a beast, but it'll get you home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in fact, the, you know, it wasn't designed to land that way. But of course, you know, don't tell a fighter pilot you can't do something with an airplane and they'll try to <laughs> prove you wrong. Right. And so in, in Desert Storm, a couple of guys, you know, the tech order will say manual version is just to get you back to friendly lines and then you eject. OK. Uh, yeah. And but a couple of guys in Desert Storm uh, were like, I can lay in this now. Unfortunately, one of them lost his life because there were some things we didn't really know at the time. And, and back then we didn't, we never trained in that mode. We now give, uh, our new a 10 pilots, one sortie, we get them up real high mm-hmm. and, and they, cause you can, you can force the aircraft into that mode. So you can actually okay. depressurize both hydraulic systems and put it into this manual flight control system. Okay. We do it just for familiarity, mm-hmm. just to, to respect the jet to go, mm-hmm. look, if you ever have to do this, this is serious business in the airplane flies a lot differently and you need to be ready for it if it ever should happen. But we don't let them get anywhere near the ground because on top of the fact that there's no boost, you don't have stability augmentation either. And so 
the airplane flies like, you know, a, a true airplane, mm-hmm. which is if I pull the power, if I chop the power, the nose will tuck. Mm-hmm. When I push the power up, the airplane wants to climb. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was one of the guys came in to land and kind of fell into his normal habit pattern, which is, you know, typically as you come over the overrun, you chop the throttles to idle. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he did it, the nose tucked and oh. he cartwheeled down the runway in a fireball. Oh, um, another guy landed it, but then drove off the runway mm-hmm. uh, and went four wheeling or three wheeling, <laughs> if you would. Right. Um, he walked away. He sheared, I think sheared the gear off. Mm-hmm. And then one guy successfully landed and stopped it. And then uh, the only other person who's done it successfully happens to be my wife. No kidding. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, yeah. So in, in Iraqi, during Iraqi freedom back in 2003, uh, she got hit by a missile uh, over Baghdad. Wow. And it hit the it hit in the back of the airplane right in the horizontal stabilizer. Okay. But the fragmentation from the warhead just shredded the, the epinage, mm-hmm. um, over, put over 600 holes in the airplane. Wow. Um, but the, it, unfortunately that's probably the one area of, if you want to call it vulnerability that the airplane has with the hydraulic systems, because they're actually split up so much like leading edge, trailing edge, left side, right side. So they don't, they never come together except for right back in that skinny part of the tail before they spread out again in the rudders and elevators. Oh, and okay. the impact, it put a hole in one system and then it nicked the other system, which it doesn't matter when it's a 3000 PSI line, right? A nick yeah. or a pinhole is all you need. Yeah. And so, but you know, and so she immediately after that happened, the, the issue becomes the rudders and the elevators automatically transition but the ailerons lock oh. because this manual system, when you throw it into manual reversion, what you're doing is you no longer have ailerons, but you're flying your roll control moves to the, to the trim tabs. Okay. And because the A-10's flight surfaces are huge, mm-hmm. the trim tabs are, are, are big enough to, to fly it. Oh, and so awesome. you, you, yeah. So you manually are flying roll control with the, with the trim tabs. They, right. they function as little, little itty bitty ailerons. Right. And, but you got to get to that switch. And so when she got hit, then Jet nosed over and she was like staring at downtown Baghdad as she'll tell the story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and she feels like she's got no control because those ailerons are locked. And so she instinctively went for the manual reversion mm-hmm. through that switch, got the ailerons back or the trim tabs, roll control back, climb, you know, pulled the jet out of a dive, hit the emergency storage jettison button, cleaned mm-hmm. everything off the wings. Yep. And then had an hour flight back uh to kuwait to really kind of feel the airplane out uh the winds were favorable and she felt confident and she was actually flying with her squadron commander and you know he said look it's a single seat fighter it's mm-hmm. like i'm not gonna you know he's like you know it's your life it's my airplane you know like mm-hmm. so he's like mm-hmm. you you have to make the decision he goes and i'll back you whatever your decision is mm-hmm. i'll back you on it and so she felt like she could land it and and she did and i mean it yeah, it took uh, it took some serious damage. In fact, I've got parts of the airplane sitting right here in my study um, because they wanted to. The maintainers were hell bent on putting it back together, and they no doubt would have. Mm-hmm. But it was from a cost effective perspective, it was easier just to pull an A10 out of the boneyard and right. put it in service than try to get all the sheet metal and all that other stuff. But yeah. I mean, it it hit it 600 holes through the tail and the you know the rudders. Uh, it, it, it peppered the engine, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but the engine held together. I mean, it went the whole way home. Uh, her her flight lead, Bino, was kept asking her about the number two engine because it was spitting honeycomb out. Really? Um, because okay. it had shredded the shrouds around the motor. But man, that motor, those GE motors are so tough. Um, I mean, I've I've taken a, uh, I've watched, I've taken seagulls through that motor, and it doesn't even, you know, nick the fan blade. Wow. That thing is so powerful, but yeah. uh, or sturdy, I should say. But sure. But you know, the tail, the tail had caught fire uh, momentarily when the hydraulic fluid lit off, mm-hmm. so the tail was all scorched. But you know, wow. the airplane held together and got her home. And so, um, you know, again, that, that probably increases my bias to how thankful I am for the survivability on this airplane. I mean, okay. it's gotten me home and, in a you know, but I've never had to take a hit like that. But I, I mean, you've, there's pictures of guys taking 57 millimeter rounds. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine took a, an IR man pad right up the tail of the engine. And it literally turned the back of that motor into a sunflower <laughs> and you know he brought it home wow. and so yeah it's you know i mean you sit in a titanium bathtub mm-hmm. you know so you can you can take a you know 37 millimeter round you know right underneath your butt and and it's not coming in the cockpit um i wouldn't ever want to ops check that no <laughs> uh you know the bullet it's you know the the glass that main glass in the center of the glare shield is built to take 23 millimeter hit wow. uh yeah it's it's a beast it's okay. it's an absolute beast you know, it, and it's all built around that gun, the Gao 8, which is just, it's just a, such an amazing thing. And, and, you know, everyone talks about Bert, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Hashtag Bert. Yeah, exactly. Hey, guys, if you're not familiar with what Bert stands for, it is a written out format of the sound that the A-10's Gao 8 30 millimeter cannon makes. It is famous and it's kind of got its own meme going. So here's a few examples of that sound. This is Bert. I love it, but I got to tell you, you know, I've, I've, I've seen a lot of videos of, uh, you know, I've seen the A-10 a number of times in person, seen it fly, uh, all over the place and always fun to watch. But, um, when I've seen more recent cockpit video, the one thing, you know, that I, that I love seeing the most, is not just the smoke, you know, when you, when you fire the gun, not just the smoke coming out over the cockpit and, and, uh, and canopy, it's seeing the little compass on the upper right um, <laughs> and seeing how it all is like just jiggling and, uh, you know, the water in it is all kind of like, uh, I don't know. Like, I mean, it's like, it looks like it's boiling, but it's just from vibration, yeah. you know? No, it's violent. It's yeah. Violent. It, 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 yeah. It, uh, it pegs, it pegs the G meter out. Wow. So the G meter is a waste Yeah. because anytime you go out and shoot the gun, the positive G's will be pegged out at 10. Okay. The airplane can't pull 10 G's, right, you know, right, but, right. And, and then the negative will be pegged out at like negative four, which that'd probably kill you. Right. right um, yeah. but yeah, that's how violent it is. I mean, I, I, I think I, I once coined it, I was doing a, back when I was a young captain, I was doing a, one of the, 
national geographic shows i think um and uh yeah that was they were like asking me about the gun and the describing and i'm like i said that i'm like not that i've ever done this but in my mind it's the best way i can describe for you and now that we have those gopros in the cockpit Mm -hmm. um to make some of those videos i think it it really helps illustrate it right like you can you can by watching it you can just see how violent it is and i'm like I said, it's like sitting on top of a wood chipper and somebody's ramming a redwood right through it and you're riding on top of it, right? Like, I'm like, that's all I can do to really describe what it's like because it's so violent. And I mean, because you sit, you sit right over the, the, the cockpit sits right on top of where the breach is. And so that's where the rounds are going and igniting Mm -hmm. and, uh, or the propellants igniting Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and they're coming out at 3,300 feet a second and you're getting 68 of them every second. And, um, it is, it is a, like the rest of the airplane. It's, it's an absolute marvel when you, I was fortunate enough to meet some of the engineers. It was built up in Burlington, Vermont at, at General Electric's plant up there. Okay. And they, they have a kind of a museum up there. And of course the Gow eight's the centerpiece cause there's nothing like it in the world. Right. And yeah. Um, but the crazy thing is, you know, you're right. The airplane was designed around it and the, the gun was designed in the late sixties and it is, you know, it's, it's powered by both hydraulic systems. So two, 3000 PSI hydraulic systems. Hmm. And, but it's, it's very mechanical. So unlike the Vulcan, mm-hmm. you know, and the 20 millimeter cannon, that's so prolific in most fighters, right. that's an electrically, you know, it's an electrically fired gun. Right. Right. And when you turn the gun on you know, per se, uh, it, it is electrically firing those rounds. And then as soon as you come off the trigger, a safing sector comes up and, and then the rounds stop. Right. And Mm -hmm. so what ends up happening is you get excess rounds that never get fired. The Gal A is unique in that it's, it's percussion fired. It's kinetic. There is a firing pin (laughs) and it's massive, but they have, you know, you have a firing pin uh, for all seven barrels. So there are seven firing pins in there. And what, what happens is when you hammer down on that trigger, the first round lined up outside the breach is the first to go. But as soon as you come off the trigger, it's pretty crazy, but this, the safing sector goes up so that the firing pin doesn't get pulled back and then slam forward onto the primer. But the gun immediately stops goes into full reverse and then until it sees the last unexpended projectile and then rotates itself back forward to put that next available projectile right outside the breach. So when you finish firing a full load, which is typically 1150 rounds, there are no rounds left. And so, and then on top of that, and like that happens in a fraction of of a second. Mm -hmm. And you don't, you don't even notice it happens. You just come off the trigger and it stops, but it's already done all that business because it only takes about half a second to come up to full speed. And then the gun on its own rotates the barrels uh, at certain time intervals to keep them evenly cooled. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like when you, when you get in and climb, you know, I'm a weapons school instructor. So, you know, we get a PhD in it. Like the really cool thing we get to do is we get to go down to Eglin air force base where they've got the gun on a test stand 
down yeah. at the at the t- at the test center down there. Okay. And so you get to go down there and talk to the guy. I still remember his name, Bob Dupont, who's the engineer that works the you know the the gun stuff. Mm-hmm. And you get to go and stand there, and they've got it set up, you know, to shoot down into this you know big sand berm. But like to be, it's a different experience. I mean, like I'm a, I was always enamored by it when we'd go down there. Mm-hmm. But like he has you the first time you've been down there, we put the students right up against the doors, uh, looking outside into the test bay. And when that thing fires, it creates so much pressure. It almost blows the doors open. <laughs> and it, yeah, it's a, it's a marvel. I mean, it's just uh, in, on top of the killing power and the destructiveness that it brings, just the, the engineering uh, of it is just, it's, it's just amazing. I mean, but it's, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, there's not, I mean, you know, like a lot of times people are like, well, you know, you know, they got a 30 millimeter now in the spooky or on the um, whiskey model gunship. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, there's a 30 millimeter on the Apache. I'm like, it's not a Gow 8. Like there's there's nothing in the world that does what the Gow 8 does. Right. Like it's not a chain gun. I'm like, it is a Gatling gun oh, yeah. <laughs> that, you know, I mean, and and that's what I tell guys, too. And I, you know, I nerd out about these things because, you know, that's I'm a I'm a patchwork. So that's what I do. Yeah, um, hell yeah. But the the. You know, a lot of times guys will like, you know, and I've got 30 millimeter shells lying all over my house. <laughs> it's, oh, uh, man. Um, so cool. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> when you put a 30 millimeter round next to a 20 millimeter, it's mm-hmm. eye opening, right? I mean, a 30 oh, yeah. millimeter round is about the size of an average person's forearm. And, but really it's the physics of it, like, because it's so exponential and, and, you know, engineers always love this stuff because they, they completely understand, but like, you know, generally speaking, you know, and everything's based on slant range and exit velocities and blah, blah, blah. But generally speaking, when you talk about a 4,000 foot shot, slant range shot, Mm -hmm. a 20 millimeter round is impacting with roughly 45 to 50,000 foot pounds of force. If you're using a kinetic energy penetrator, okay. The GAO eight is hitting that same target with 450,000 foot pounds. Holy jeez. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just... There's no comparison. Like it, no, I mean, that's why... I mean, and, and so then you couple that, you know, just sheer force, and then the unique kinetic energy penetrator that we use with depleted uranium, um, you know, the, the DU is very unique because it has physical properties that are they're just different than anything else mm-hmm. everybody freaks out because you hear uranium like right. you know you could yeah. lay in a tub of it for 30 years and not get a sunburn sure but right. <laughs> now you know the after effects of it are a little different story but yeah you know it's it the penetrator is pretty small i mean it's like only a couple inches long okay. but it's got a very unique shape hmm. um and the physics you know, gurus will tell you that, you know, the surface area up top versus the surface area in the back. And then, um, but tungsten, for example, is probably the next densest material kind of mushrooms. Okay. Um, as mm-hmm. it, as it hits in typically when we look at kinetic energy penetrators, you're talking about penetrating rolled homogeneous armor. Right. Um, right. And, uh, DU on the other hand, the, in the shape and the nature of the material and the density, um, it actually has a property called self-sharpening. Mm. So as the penetrator hits the armor, it's, you know, most guys describe it as it melts, it's melting through because there's actually some 
chemical reactions that do make that a true statement, though it's oversimplified. Mm-hmm. But the the DU, as it goes through and penetrates the armor, it's it starts flaking off. So if you can think about it, it's making itself more sharp and narrow as it continues to burn through the armor hmm. with just sheer kinetic energy. But the other interesting thing that's happening behind it is the the uranium depleted uranium that's that's peeling off if you would mm-hmm. is actually interacting chemically speaking with the armor and behind the penetrator it's creating what's called a pyrophoric mass okay and so in a10 pilot terms we call that hot molten juju <laughs> right, um, <yeah. laughs> but that's the scientific side of it and so so behind it is this mass that because it, it's just the you know matter being created and destroyed you know, theory. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's making this mass behind it. So once the penetrator, and this is where you see, like, if you go back and look at, I remember in the days of Southern watch climbing around, uh, blown up Iraqi tanks in Kuwait. Um, and it was interesting because these things were just smoked, like the turret popped off of it. And you're looking around trying to find like the, the entry or exit wound, if you would. And you just find this little really small hole and you would know that was a 30 millimeter shot because once that thing gets inside, first off, if it's in a you know contains closed space, you have overpressure and over temperature. That's mm-hmm. the physics of it, right? A mm-hmm. penetrator that's coming into a closed space is going to cause that. And then added to that, this pyrophoric mass comes in behind it. And as soon as it gets to the inside tank compartment, it oxidizes. And then what we politely say it reacts negatively with all the components inside the tank (laughs) to include the humans. Right. So this mass goes in there oxidizes. And so you effectively have this, you know, ball of lava (laughs) that comes in and then your ammo, your oil, your fuel, everything's going with it. And then, you know, all those things factor together. So it's, you know, I mean, it's just, again, another, you know, who, who is the guy with green eye shade, in, in a PhD, you know, sitting in the bowels of, of the Pentagon who came up with this idea that, that, you know, (laughs) if we took this material and I mean, so that's kind of the interesting thing with the armor Pearson incendiary round Mm -hmm. is that there's no explosive to it. It's just a penetrator sitting in that nose cone of that bullet. That's all there is to it. It's It's just just, physics. It's the kinetics. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Wow. We hope you are enjoying this episode of the Go Bold podcast. Please take a moment to like and subscribe so you don't miss any of our fabulous guests and topics. You can also find Go Bold with Jyoti on YouTube and at goboldthepodcast.com. Now, back to our show. I'm looking at a picture of the A-10 as, as we speak, and um, what I'm looking at is the the barrel of the gun, and I think it is center line um or is it just it is okay it is center line because obviously the the nose landing gear is off center line and i think that's that's to accommodate the gun i guess yep that's absolutely right so the gun the gun was built on center line it fires out of the three o'clock position Mm -hmm. and then as you sit in the jet so as you're looking at the jet it would be like the nine o'clock position but right um but yeah that's exactly on center line um, and yeah, so they, to accommodate the gun because it goes so far back. So the, the breach is under the pilot, but then you have this giant drum of ammunition 
behind it. Right. Um, right. So it, it's almost half the length of the jet. And so, yeah, so the, the nose gear is offset uh, there to the right as you sit in the jet, left as you look at it. Yep. So, yeah, so it, it's one of those challenges of, you know, one of the early challenges of young A-10 pilots is teaching them how to taxi on centerline because their nose gear is offset. <laughs> so you actually, you actually taxi with your right knee your right knee, if you line your right knee up on the center line, then you're, you're actually got the nose gear on there. Oh, this... <laughs> it gets off center. Yeah. It's kind of funny. No, that is kind of funny. It's like, hang on, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that, that, that illustrates the fact that it, it's not, it's not just a, a saying that the A-10 is built around the gun. I mean, it's true. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it is completely built around that thing. Absolutely true. It is such a neat thing. All right. So uh, the picture I'm looking at begs me to ask this question. And it, it's it's a very trivial question. It has nothing to do with the flying properties of the aircraft. But uh, do you prefer green or gray? <laughs> um, I never flew the green A-10. The green was gone oh. just as I was getting there. Okay. Um, um, I... Uh, so I don't have the affinity some guys have for the green A10 because I've only known gray. Mm-hmm. What I what I do have the affinity for um, are my and I've been fortunate to have been assigned to the Flying Tigers twice, both in the 75th Fighter Squadron and the 74th Fighter Squadron. But the jet with teeth on them. Oh and, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. So I mean, the the tiger the tiger teeth are just uh, you know you can't. I don't know. It's just, I never got used to, it was my first fighter squadron, the, the 75th, the tiger sharks mm-hmm. and to have those teeth, uh, on the jet. Um, you know, one or the shark's teeth, I should say, uh, you know, it, it one to have that lineage with the flying tigers and, you know, it's pretty cool. Cause I have this awesome litho of a P 40, uh, that hangs in, in here next to, you know, right next to some of my lithos with my A-10 with the teeth on it. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, I got, it took a while getting used to like the first airplanes I flew had teeth on them. And then when I went to the weapon school as a student, it just was weird every time. Like it took a long time to get used to like walking out and like, what's wrong with the airplane? Like <laughs> it's just, it's just got a gray nose on it. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of boring. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's something about those teeth. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just a, uh, it's it's so perfect with that gun like you know other other they've tried to do with other airplanes there was a time when when i first got to pope air force base that our sister squadron was actually a viper an f-16 squadron okay the 74th mm-hmm. and they were moving airplanes around but for a while f-16s were there at pope and because they were in the 23rd fighter group the flying tigers they put the teeth on this on their on their vipers mm-hmm. and it just didn't look right no. <laughs> like i mean it just you know it was kind of funny to see an a-10 with teeth and then an f-16 it's just i don't know i'm again i'm biased i'll, I'll own it but yeah uh, yeah but yeah it's 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 i mean it's just so iconic right i mean it is the, the pictures of those things it's just such a mean foreboding looking you know death chariot <laughs> You know, and, and the funny thing is you're talking about, you know, shark's teeth on it because the, the other variation is obviously kind of like a warthog's teeth, right? Yeah, the tusks. The so tusks, the tusks, right. Yeah. yeah, so our, uh, the reserves, the Air Force Reserve A-10s have the tusks. So both the uh, 47th Fighter Squadron down at Davis-Monthan and then uh, the uh, uh, Kansas City, you know, it's Missouri, it's Whiteman Air Force Base, but they, they, you know, refer to themselves as the KC Hogs, the Kansas City Hogs at Whiteman. Sure. Um, 
are the uh are the two squadrons that have the tusks and then there's some other variations actually because uh one of our um the uh the unit uh geez, it's, i want to say it's uh, not des moines um fort wayne uh fort wayne they used to be an f-16 unit they converted to a-10s about 10 years ago and they're the black snakes and so they have uh a snake kind of a, a snake uh face art uh, nose art on it so like yeah like there's fangs almost or um or... yeah it's kind of i don't know they're the black snakes so it's kind of i don't know I'm, okay. I'm not good enough in my uh, biology to know exactly what what that thing is yeah, it kind of right. looks a little weird but yeah. but it kind of works because of the gun so okay, the gun kind of right. looks like the yeah. the forked tongue coming out or whatever okay so, yeah <laughs> I'll have to look for that. That's, you know, it, it and it just it, kind of you describing that speaks about the A-10s and how, how they're dispersed. Like, it seems like every A-10 I, I see has DM on it, you know, but because uh, <laughs> I guess that's where most of them are or, or a line share are. But uh, yeah, uh, it used to be uh, DM had three squadrons. Um, now there's still three squadrons there, but one's Air Force, Air Force Reserve Command. So they actually have their tail flash is DP oh, um, okay. for your dog patch because their lineage goes back to Pearl Harbor. Uh, um, okay. And uh, th- so th- that's where they tie their tail flash to. Gotcha. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the um, there's still DM still probably the, the most uh, highest numbers, but you know, and there's two squatters at Moody air force base and they use, the ft tail which is flying tigers so that's where the 23rd fighter group lives but but you're right we do have a lot of guard and reserve units um you know we still have uh i want to say five five air national guard squadrons in addition to the active duty and reserves but it's kind of crazy when you look at the the numbers you know today you know we have 200 you know last i checked 280 roughly a10s still in the inventory like actively flying and I remember right after I got into the A-10s, uh, one of my instructors in my first fighter squadron was telling me about uh, back in the day, if you would. <laughs> and uh, um, he had been assigned to RAF Bentwaters. And back in the day, we had six A-10 squadrons just at that base. Oh, my which God. Which is more than – that's more squadrons than we have in the entire active duty right now. Wow. I mean, we're, we're, we have wow. five squadrons left in the active duty, and they had six at that base. At that base. And Holy Yeah, smokes. just one base. <laughs> yeah, so it was – I mean, back in the day, the pre-Desert Storm days, man, that, that airplane was prolific. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, three, three squadrons at Myrtle Beach, three squadrons – uh, down at Alex at Alexandria Air Force Base in Louisiana, mm-hmm. three squadrons at Davis Monthan. I mean, uh, Osa. I mean, they were ever or Suwon. They were everywhere. But yeah. yeah, it's pretty pretty intriguing. I I had the fortune to go to Barksdale Air Force Base because my sister lived in Shreveport, uh, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. So you know, just sister cities over to to Bossier. Yep. And yep. Uh, yeah, so I I went to Barksdale, and uh, thankfully at that time they still had some green A10s. <laughs> and uh, it was just the coolest thing to see them. They had both green and gray. And uh, so I was shooting some pictures of those. But, uh, man, just lovely to see. But I don't think they're at Barksdale anymore. Uh, no, sense. no. that yeah. uh, The unit at davis Monthan, the reserve unit at davis Monthan was the unit at Barksdale. So okay. when, you know, base realignment, closure, all that stuff went on, yep. they they uh, brought them to davis Monthan, and, and so they're still – 
they're one of our two schoolhouses, if you would. So one of our uh, formal training units. So we have one active duty squadron that does training mm-hmm. and then the reserve squadron there, the 47th, they are also an FTU that does training. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, so I'm going to ask you to, to speak about it. You mentioned to me once in one of our conversations about magic beans and it was in relation to the A-10. So you got to tell me about magic beans while we're on the topic. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yet another, you know, how, how fighter pilots describe complicated engineering feats. <laughs> yeah, right. We use small, small words and pictures. Um, pictures are always good. Yeah. yeah. So the, the system, so the, some of our A-10s, and they're eventually all going to be modified, um, have OBOG, so onboard oxygen generation system. So um, it's very, I mean, from a from an employment standpoint, it's very useful because the A-10 prior to getting OBOGs um, used locks, liquid oxygen. And okay. so, you know, it's a just a canister. It's the size of like a basketball. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, the maintainers come out with all their specialized gear on and you know jam liquid oxygen into the into this tank and it it carries five liters and and so it it you know then the jet converts it into breathable oxygen Mm -hmm. uh in our system and so five liters you know get you i I don't know what the the consumption rate's all based on how much oxygen the jet's given you the jet does it on its own based on what the altitude in the cockpit is and so um for us you know, the, the altitude stays constant until you're passing 10,000 feet. And then it, I think it's 60%. Don't hold me to that of the ambient outside altitude is what the pressurization schedule is for the jet. And so the jet then also looks at that and decides how much oxygen to give you. So the higher you go, the more oxygen it gives you. And then the pilot can always go to hundred percent if he feels he needs it. Mm-hmm. Um, so five liters is probably on average, a couple sorties. Uh, and then you got to fill it back up again. It just it just goes away. You know, it's a sure. finite resource. Sure. Obogs, on the other hand, generates oxygen. Mm-hmm. So like it just sucks in air, and then back to your question, <laughs> passes through these magic beans. <laughs> That's the term the engineers. I didn't create that term. My maintenance guys told me that once, and I really kind of looked at them funny. It was like, are you talking down to me or? <laughs> <laughs> are 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 you really telling me that's what we call them? And and so it's a proprietary issue. Mm-hmm. The manufacturer, uh, we can't crack it open, and my maintainers don't know really what's in there. But that's the <laughs> magic sauce, right? Like that's that's how it how it does its magic thing. That you know, just air comes in and oxygen comes out. I don't know. That's <laughs> like the best way I could describe it. But the beauty of it is. Um, it saves space and weight in the jet, but it's, it's now it's infinite. Right. So it's no longer a finite resource. So when you go back to what we were talking about earlier, if I'm operating in an austere location, Mm -hmm. I'm forward deployed, Mm -hmm. those kind of things, I don't have to worry about liquid oxygen. I don't have to worry about, you know, cause you know, in the good old days, uh, uh, you know, liquid oxygen, you had a gauge. And then when the gauge got to half a liter, you would get an oxygen low light. And so pretty much mm. if you get that light, you're going home. Right. So if you were on a long sortie, you know, not planned to be long, you thought you had enough oxygen taken off, you know, that, that could be a, a showstopper. Right. And now with the OBOGs, you don't have to worry about it. But, you know, we, the guys, 
there have been a lot of issues in a lot of different airplanes. You know, the F-22. Yep. We had a rash with the T-6. Mm-hmm. Um, we had some problems with our systems. Um, so there's definitely a trust factor, um, you know, because it goes back to the, well, the magic beans. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, really? I'm putting my trust in magic beans? Like, I, I like to know that I got a gauge, it's like a gas tank, right? And right. I go, yeah. I have four liters of liquid oxygen. And, um, you know, but so it's taken some time to get pilots to trust the system again, mm-hmm. um, just because, you know, if a contaminant gets in there and it's, I, I uh, one of my instructors, uh, his call sign was Oatmeal. <laughs> um, <laughs> awesome. His last name, his last name was O'Neill. Okay. So, but, right. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> um, but Oatmeal, I remember telling me a, a story, you know, just to, res- you know, respecting the jet, right. Respecting the. Yeah. To you know, following checklist, why, why, you know, you, you always say they're written in blood. Right. And he told us a story about taking off at an Ellis Air Force Base. And um, he said, you know, about just 10 miles off the runway, just didn't feel right hmm. and just felt weird. And and he looked over and he goes, and I look over and he goes, and, and I'm staring at the other jet, my my wingman, mm-hmm. and his jet is gray. And, it is, and I'm like, well, why is that weird? And he goes, because back then they were painted green. Holy and I'm like, Ooh, <laughs> so he had lost his color vision. And so wow. now he's like, he go, he's like, and he immediately was like, okay, we're turning back. And yeah, yeah. you know, he, he gang loaded the system, which means go to hundred percent positive pressure. Okay. You know, something's wrong with me. Yeah. And he tells a story about like literally flying with one hand on the stick and one hand on the ejection handle. Cause he was afraid he was going to black out. And he, he, he had kind of in that short time was like, okay, as soon as I get tunnel vision, you know, cause you know, that kind of the typical, like from the centrifuge, mm-hmm. you know, when you're having an issue, if you're going to G lock or black out, mm-hmm. you know, the, the progress of that is you lose your color vision, then you get tunnel vision and then you go night, night. And right. so he was like, if I get, if I get tunnel vision, I'm pulling the handles and he luckily got on the deck and you know, the ambulance came over and his pulse ox was really low and what had happened was the there was a, a piece in the system, this little compressor piece that had kind of eaten itself. And so it was throwing metal shavings, almost microscopic metal shavings into the oxygen system. Wow. And he was breathing them. And what that was doing is it was it was making him histotoxic. Sure. Hypoxia, right? right so right. it was just dis- the, the metal shavings were displacing you know, oxygen in his lungs. And so his lungs couldn't, couldn't hold oxygen and pass it into his bloodstream. And so, yeah, so guy, I mean, that's one of those systems that, you know, as soon as something happens, you know, guys get really, I mean, you know, it took me a long time when I, I had a couple incidences of wing commander talking to my pilots, mm-hmm. you know, there were guys who were like, I'm not flying the O box yet. I'm, I'm only taking a liquid oxygen jet cause we had a mixed fleet mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and then guys saying, you know, if this happens, I'm not doing the checklist, I'm dropping my mask, which in some respects, okay, that'll work. Mm-hmm. But if you have smoke and fumes in the cockpit, or if you're at altitude, you're going to end up hypoxic. Right. And yeah, so it's dangerous. Exactly. And I'm yeah. like, I don't want you guys learning negative things. But right. man, I'll tell you what, they, they, it took a long time before we regained the general population pilot populations trust in that system. Cause guys just, you know, were flying with their masks down and, you know, I mean, mm. and in the a 10, we, you know, we're frequently, 
you know, not up in the twenties. Right. Um, but it's still dangerous. And I'm, I just, you know, but that was, that was, that was a definitely problematic system for a while. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you're making me think also about, um, there was one of the comments about just kind of flying low and, and, um, and, you know, in terms of hypoxia and all this other stuff, um, the the A10 I can't imagine has like an auto GCAS right because that that would kind of be contradictory right. to what your your yeah. mission is right correct <laughs> it'd be going yeah, off all the time you know? <laughs> yeah it's it's got a GCAS okay uh, so a ground collision alert system mm-hmm. and so um, and it actually has uh, it was upgraded uh, probably with the I want to say thing it might have been part of yeah I think it was part of the C model upgrade in the in the mid two thousands. Uh, we got a PG cast, so a predictive GCAS. Hmm. So the the predictive GCAS uses the DTED in the jet, which is the 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 GPS. Um, not describing it correctly, the map data, right? And so the jet knows where it is, mm-hmm. and so and it also knows what's in front of it. Right. And so if I'm at, let's say, you know, 500 feet, and there's a thousand foot hill hill in front of me it knows it's out there and at a certain point it'll tell me pull up pull up okay because i'm not going to hit the ground per se but the ground is rising right and it's right. in front of me not yeah. below me and right. so so it does so it can it can actually take real time it uses the map data and then it uses the attitude of the jet you know speed dive angle bank angle all that and it gives you okay if you don't you know do a max pull mm-hmm. Uh, or max performance, so steady tone pull, mm-hmm. not like max G, mm-hmm. but steady tone pull. You know you're going to hit in X seconds, and I forget all the info or you know the the specific numbers are, but sure. yeah, the jet will never fly away from something. Like right. if you ignore it, you're going to pack it in. Right. And right. but to your point, that's part of it is so the predictive GCAS disables itself below 400 feet because. Mm you're now telling the jet I'm in the low altitude environment and mm-hmm. I don't need you going off yeah. every two seconds. Cause it gets annoying. <laughs> right. right. And cause you know, bitch and Betty goes, pull up, pull up. And you get this big X in the center yeah. of your heads up display. Um, but what it does do still is as soon as you break 90 feet, it goes off. And uh, so okay. hmm. it does, it's still annoying. Now, not everybody, we don't qualify all our guys at hundred feet. You don't typically get qualified until you've got a certain amount of experience. Most of our guys as wingmen get checked out down to 300 feet, okay. but typically until you're a Sandy pilot, uh, or in usually high time guy for ship flight lead instructor pilot is when we check guys out to hundred feet. Um, cause obviously now you're in the weeds and, and, you know, th- the difference between 300 feet and 100 feet is definitely exponential. It's, it's eye opening. Mm. And, uh, but yeah, there's a lot, I mean, there's not room for error when, you know, when you go into a bank, you lose half of it. Right. I right. mean, like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. you know I mean? Yeah. Almost. Yeah, and, uh, right. yeah. so, um, so yeah, so that system, it's still a bit of an annoyance, but because we operate in that environment, mm-hmm. um, the community writ large is very much argued against, every so often we'll have an accident, mm-hmm. um, in, in, in full transparency. One of my best friends was killed, um, back in, uh, um, 2004, okay. uh, in Alaska in a night, they were doing night vision goggle, takeoff and landing training before deploying. 
and they were doing it into a snowstorm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's Alaska. It happens. And, yeah. uh, he was, he was leading the formation, you know, the accident board, you know, most likely he's looking back over his shoulder, checking on the other three jets. Cause he's the instructor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a weapon school guy. Um, and be- the, the belief is that he got spatial disorientation, hmm. um, because of the visibility, the NVGs, no moon, snowstorm, mm-hmm. a lot of factors mm-hmm. and, uh, and couldn't overcome it. And whether it was incapacitating or unrecognized, we'll never know. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. but, um, but the belief is there were a lot of arguments every time one of those type of accidents happens one of the findings will come out is, well, if we had auto G cast, this would have never happened, which right. true, mm-hmm. but, um, the it's outweighed arguably my position mm-hmm. by the practicality of when you're operating at low altitude, you know, if I accidentally break a hundred feet and hit 90, I don't want this thing to eject me. Right. right? <laughs> yeah, um, right. Or, now, yeah. arguably maybe not that. Cause that's kind of what the F 35 system is. You know, one of the things that it can do, um, but I think that maybe the happy medium would be what the what the Viper has on it now, mm-hmm. which has saved a lot of guys' lives, which is an auto fly up system. Yeah. Which is that their system isn't built for the ground, it's built for G locks. Right. Right. Correct. And so right. so when when the jet goes, okay, I'm in a really weird attitude and there are no positive inputs on the now, it's got a flickus. So this, the computer can do that in a stick and rudder airplane like the A-10 or the Eagle. Right. Yeah. You know, how is that going to work? But to the point, I think it does. I think that would be more of the practicality that, um, hey, if you detect, you know, if it detects something like that for us, the altitude, you know, the PK of the ground is mm-hmm. close to one. Mm-hmm. You know, some guys have bounced off of it and lived, but it would fly you up. Right. But I would also one of my arguments when we've had these discussions about the system like that is like, but I want to have the ability to override it. Right. Because right. if I'm in combat yep. and I'm at 100 feet for a reason, right, I'm mm. probably hiding behind rocks because right. there's exactly. a double digit Sam out there that's going to smoke me. Right. And then all of a sudden the jet flies me up from behind the rock and <laughs> I take a missile in the <laughs> yeah. face. Yeah, here like I guess. Yeah, <laughs> not exactly what I want. But no, in training, no. I could I could see, you know, I could see the value in it. Mm. Um but it's also a pretty expensive system, and typically, it, it uh, then you get into the argument of I've got a finite set of dollars. What's the probability? You know, how many times has it happened, mm-hmm. and what am I going to give up? And maybe you know, a lethality yeah. or a survivability. When I say survivability, combat survivability system mm-hmm. that I could put the money into, mm-hmm. and that's and that's always a healthy tension with airplanes, right? Is yep. you know. The main, the maintenance guys, they, they want certain money for certain systems and the operators could give a shit about, you know, monitoring the, uh, the uh, health of the engine or how many G's the airplane has been, you know, exposed to for how much time. So, cause we're trying to figure out longevity issues and stuff like that. You know, pilots like, I don't care. I don't want to invest money into some stupid black box that, you know, tells us what, how many cycles are in the engine. I want this new missile system or I want this new uh, flare system or whatever. And so that's never, that's never going to go away. It's always, it's always, you know, give and take, but Mm -hmm. we we pick it um, up next time. Yeah. Sounds good. All right, pal. All right, Jody. Well, always a pleasure. A lot of fun, man. Same here. As you know, I love talking about this stuff. So yeah, uh, we haven't even got into any of your operational stuff. And, and I I also, uh, just so you know, I also want to even go down the, difference between the a10a and a10c 
because like oh, yeah. think, you know yep. we got to talk about that too but anyways yeah luckily, luckily too if i can't if you stump me with a hard question i live i, I live with the test director for yes yeah. <laughs> yeah so right she knows everything if i can if you stump me i can i can phone a friend and yell across the room to her <laughs> to get the answer phone a friend i love it that's awesome hey everybody i hope you've enjoyed this episode of go bold Please join us for part two of our conversation with Colonel Campbell, where we continue to talk about the A-10, and specifically we get into the modern variant, the A-10C, and we talk a lot about what forward air control and close air support means and how it is done between the Army and the Air Force. So I encourage you to check out the next episode. Uh, you won't want to miss it. It's a lot of fun. And if you have any questions for us or any questions for Colonel Campbell, please reach out to us at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com and we'll ask him if he's willing to answer some of them. So I hope you have a wonderful day and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Go Bold. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner. <laughs>